Let's open our Bibles to the story of Elijah. We're going to be in 1 Kings. Now, last week, I skipped two books of the Bible. I just removed them, 1 and 2 Samuel, so we'll add those back in this week. So if you want to find 1 Kings, you open your Bible at the very beginning, and you work through the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and here we go, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then 1 Kings. So we're looking at 1 Kings 17. Does God have your attention? If God is going to do anything with us, he needs our attention. I've been reading a book recently by Joe Bernard. It's a book aimed at men's discipleship. And he tells the story of Benjamin Day, the founder of the New York Sun, which was the first penny newspaper. Now, Before Day conceived of the sun, newspapers were too expensive for the mass market. The idea was writers wrote things that they wanted to write about instead of writing things that focused on the interest of the readers. So Day came up with this business plan. He said, what if we treated people's attention like a commodity? So he did two things. The first thing he did was he lowered the price to a level that any person on the street could afford on a daily basis. The second thing he did is he scoured the prisons, police departments, tenements to find the most salacious, eye-grabbing headlines available. Now, his business model was pretty simple. He wasn't making that much money on the sale of the newspapers where he generated all of his revenue was through selling advertisements to businesses. A new product was available for purchase, the attention of you and me, ordinary men and women. Now, Babard says this, he says, we live in an attention economy. Modern companies view our attention as a finite resource, every bit as valuable as crude oil or natural gas. So when you think about that, there's only so much of your attention to go around. Does God have it? Does he have your attention? Or does he receive the scraps, the foggy mental leftovers after we've spent aimless hours scrolling online, clicking on clickbait, consuming media. Here's something that Christians learned long ago, but maybe has been lost upon us. They knew this, the only way to become like God is to maintain an awareness of God. So think of it, if, if God gets the scraps of my attention, then really my spiritual life is only living upon those scraps. I could be spiritually malnourished even by in times when I'm still going to church, still listening to sermons, even having a Bible 10 feet away from myself. Well, if God is going to do a great work in you, he needs your attention. And once you give God your attention, in this story, we'll see that God has all of Elijah's attention. That's when he starts doing these mysterious works in your life, powerful works in your life, that maybe works you didn't ask for, but works when he brings them into your life, he changes you 
and he does incredible things. Let's pick up the story. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, as I look at this story beginning in verse 2 and 3, I like the, the steady rhythm, the steady pace of the action. God tells Elijah something. He says, go. And notice that there is no follow-up dialogue from Elijah. We don't read the next sentence saying something along the lines of, what do you mean, go, God? Haven't I begun something here? You, you told me to go give a message to Ahab. Doesn't it make sense for me to kind of stick around and, and finish what I've started? Now, what I like about this is Elijah shows us something very important about obedience in this text. You see, when God gives us a message, he's not giving us that message so that he can kind of check with us and see if it's okay. Like, do I have your permission to do this? Is that fine with you? No, the kind of obedience that God desires is the kind of obedience where he declares his word and we, his servants, say, yes, Lord, I will go. Now, it's in this place called Kareth where God does have Elijah's attention. Notice the text says it's east of the Jordan. He would have had to climb upwards beyond the Jordan to get here. It's a steep place. It's a place of craggy walls, a place where, as you're following that twisty brook bed, there's also walls with caves on the side, and surely one of these places would have been his new home in hiding. And we have to ask the question, and it's a logical question, why would God bring Elijah to Kareth? Now, Elijah doesn't ask that question, but we want meaning from this text, don't we? And so, as I've studied this, I see two important biblical reasons why God would do this. The first has to do with the position of the prophet. You see, Elijah spoke on behalf of God. So to remove the prophet from the land is like removing the very word of God from the land. Elijah declares a rain drought. God says there will also be a word drought. You won't hear for whatever time Elijah's away, thus saith the Lord. Secondly, though, I believe that this is also about God's servant. I believe that God is preparing Elijah for his work. Have you ever prayed this dangerous prayer? God, use me. Or as Harry likes to say, wherever, whenever, whatever, I am your servant. And that's a dangerous prayer. That's a dangerous prayer because when you tell God, use me, God's going to say to you, well, you're not quite ready yet. I've got to do some work. I've got to stretch you. And that's what God is doing in Elijah. He takes him to this place called Kareth, and he begins to provide for him with these odd provisions. Now, 
When you think about it, why are they odd provisions? Well, they're odd because they're the type of provisions that we wouldn't necessarily ask God to bring into our lives. You know, when I ask God for provisions, I have much different things in mind, like a five-star hotel with room service and a spa day. I'd like those kind of provisions. But God doesn't tend to give us those kinds of provisions. Because God knows that those kind of provisions are not the kind of provisions that help you and I to grow to look more like Jesus. So we see these odd provisions, four of them. Solitude, ravens, inactivity, and uncertainty. Let's begin with solitude. If Kareth is anything, it is a place of isolation. We don't know how long Elijah is here, but as you look at the story, you, you envision that days become weeks, and then weeks turn into months, and most likely, Elijah is here of upwards of a year in this place. No matter how long he's here, it doesn't take long for isolation to set in on a person. I was recently reading about the isolation, the experience of isolation with soldiers in World War II. S.L.A. Slam Marshall wrote a, a book back in 1947 where he was interviewing thousands of these soldiers and they shared in their experience that it was quite different than what they had expected. You see, they didn't walk into battle with their eyes closed. They, they knew that battle would be an extreme experience, a fearful experience. But they also believed that they would be in this together. That you would walk into the battlefield and, and much like a, a sporting event, there would be our side and there would be the other side and, and we're competing together for victory. But, but it was quite different in their experience. When that first shot rang out, many of the soldiers just dropped to the ground. And this so-called team experience actually turned out to be a very individual experience of horrifying aloneness, uncontrollable fear. In fact, one of the most controversial aspects of Marshall's book was that he claimed on average only one in four soldiers ended up firing his weapon. Because the rest were too shocked, afraid, alone to be of much tactical use. So combat for these soldiers was their careth. Now over the years as I've been a pastor, I've watched some of you enter into careth in your own experience. It, it, it generally comes after some kind of life-altering event. It, it could be the loss of someone who is very close to you. Or, or maybe it was the loss of, of a job. It could be a medical diagnosis that you weren't anticipating, you weren't expecting, or even something like a divorce. And you're shocked. You, you walk into this desert wasteland and, and you're expecting some different plan for your life, some different experience for your life, and it's so alone. You're shocked even by the fact that you could walk into a place like a local church, which is supposed to be vibrant and alive and full of relationships. Yeah, people just don't know. 
They don't understand. How could they? You didn't. No one knows what it's like until they walk into Kareth. But here's the thing. Solitude is one of God's odd provisions. When you look in the scriptures, you see all kinds of instances where God brings his servants into the wilderness. Uh, He took Moses into the wilderness for 40 years before Moses went back and spoke to Pharaoh. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they would go and conquer the promised land. King David, before he was ever King David, was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. Even the Apostle Paul, for three years we learn in the book of Galatians that he wanders in the Syro-Arabian wilderness before he goes on his missionary journey. And Christ, of course, after his baptism, is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit as he's being prepared for ministry. Solitude is odd, but it has this uncanny ability to help you and I to see what matters most. It's in this place of isolation, this careth where God gets you alone. There's nothing to distract you. And when he has you in this place, that's when he can say to you, I'm all that you need. And then he builds in to your character that brave faith, that kind of faith that walks valiantly for his purposes in this world. Let's consider another odd provision in the text. Notice the odd provision of the ravens. Now, the ravens are important, and uh, as we think about these, I want to say this. It's important as you study the miracles of the Bible to avoid misinterpreting what these miracles mean for us, okay? If you look at the miracles of the Bible and your takeaway is, if I just have a little more faith, then God's going to send ravens to bring me food, you're misunderstanding the point of the miracle. Same thing with the walls of Jericho. All right? Now, let me ask the question. Could God feed you with ravens? Yes, absolutely. Maybe a better question is, do you want God to feed you with ravens? Right? I mean, I guess to each their own, but I like the grocery store. I like my things prepackaged. I like it when my food has not been in the mouth of an animal that eats carrion. Now, As we think about these miracles, we have to understand in the scriptures that when God performs a miracle, he does so to communicate something of himself. It's normally a fresh revelation. As I look at scripture, I notice that miracles don't happen often, and I'm using this word specifically, seldom do they happen twice. And never do I see an instance where God is told what to do with regard to a miracle because we're not driving the bus, he's driving the bus. So that means then today that if I was to go and find a big wall like Jericho and walk around it seven times and, or for seven days and scream till I'm blueing the face, most likely the only thing that's going to happen in that moment is I'm going to embarrass myself. But... As you think about these ravens, as you think about how do these apply to us, 
I think we can see an odd provision of ravens in a different sense, and I want you to think of it like this, that God gives us special grace for special times. Okay, this is the type of grace that comes into your life in the oddest fashion, It's that relationship that came out of nowhere, that spiritual friend or spiritual mentor who, before you met this person, you couldn't have envisioned what their impact would be in your life or how powerful an influence they would have. But now that you're in relationship, it's changed everything. It could be the experience of walking into a local church. Maybe you're in a fresh setting or a fresh place of life. And you walk into this church and you say to yourself, this is nothing like what I'm familiar with. It's different. And yet, I sense God's presence. I see God's people in action. I'm being fed by ravens week after week as the word of God is preached. There's all kinds of experiences like this. It could be a new job, an unplanned pregnancy. Maybe it's a pregnancy later in life and when you're told about this child and as the child's growing and developing in the womb, you find that the circumstances of this child's birth is going to be different. There's going to be challenges. But then you get that precious child. And they're just like, that child's just like these ravens. Maybe not a gift that you would have asked for, but, but when God brought it, it was so welcome in your life, in your world. You see, in Kareth, ravens are as appreciated as a DoorDash delivery. Now let's look at another odd provision. This is the oddness of inactivity. I know it seems foreign to our pragmatic, industrious, 24-7 on the go mindset to think that God could actually accomplish as much, if not more, in our inactivity as he does through our activity. You see, God accomplishes these things because he is in control, right? Now think about Elijah's experience in Kareth. What value could he add to God's purposes and God's plans there? Let me give you a daily itinerary. Sit, wait, pray. Sit more, wait more, pray more. You know what's not happening in Kareth? Elijah's adding nothing to his LinkedIn profile right now. Too many of us only sense God's pleasure in our activity. We always and wrongly believe that we must be doing something for him. But sometimes, sometimes, hear this, God actually wants to stop your activity, stop you from doing things for him so that he can start doing things in you. And that's when he pumps the brakes. It makes me think of... um, a young man that I have the pleasure of being good friends with, Matt Lounsbury. He, he attended this church. He was one of our students in the youth group. He left youth group some like seven or eight years ago, which, you know, time flies by. I was his youth pastor, actually. And initially, Matt was called into pastoral ministry. So he goes off to Moody Bible Institute. He's pursuing that career pathway. And while in the study of pastoral ministry, God changes plans on him. 
he senses a call to get into law enforcement. Now, what were the values that God was stirring in his heart while serving people, justice, protecting others, restoring people who had made broken decisions? And it was a brave faith decision. Because I don't know about you, but I get into a trajectory, and then I get a little uh, inflexible and rigid. I say, no, this is my plans. I'm very happy with these plans. Lord, don't change the plans on me. So Matt is pursuing law enforcement. He gets into a nine-month education program. He then goes off to the police academy, and now it comes time for him to start searching for a job. He sends out resume after resume, initially no responses, sends out more resumes to more police departments, and as he's sending out more resumes, now that, you know, some interest is shown until finally he gets into one position that seems very promising, like he's going to go all the way through the process, and then God pumps the brakes really hard on him in that search. As we were processing it over the phone, you know the questions you ask in a moment like this. Why is God doing this? Why would he call me to get involved in something, put something so powerfully on my heart, and then I get into the process of exploring it and searching it and pursuing it, and there's nothing? Well, God works through our inactivity. As we've been processing this together, we've seen two provisions of God in this waiting for Matt. First, God's working on Matt. He's building his character. He's teaching him patience, perseverance, and steadfastness. As you continue to go after something, as you continue to put your energy and effort into it, it teaches you resolve. Secondly, we believe God's protecting him. Think about the national scene for the last eight or so months. All of the turmoil that's been going on around the cities. Imagine starting off as a new police officer in that situation. Do you think God knows better than we know? Oh, I do. You see, waiting in activity, it is an odd provision, but it is one of the tools in his tool belt. And God's willing to use this tool because God cares far more about who you are than what you do for him. Let's consider one last odd provision. This last one is total uncertainty. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Think about your life. Much of your life and my life, we, we live with the illusion that everything is certain. That basically, I've got all the things I need Uh, You know, if God wants to help me out, he can just kind of add a couple more things on my want list. But, you know, all the provisions are there. I'm fine. Sometimes to shock us out of that mindset, God takes us into the place called total uncertainty. Total uncertainty is the loss of basic provision. What did Elijah need while he was living in Kareth? Well, a couple of things. Shelter, clothes, food, and water. And then 
the brook dries up. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. The brook was a steady flow for some time. Then he started to notice the water level lowering. After a while, it becomes a trickle, just a little trickle of a brook. One day, there's no more flow of water. It's just wet sand. And then it becomes parched earth. Do you know what it's like when the brook dries up? Do you know what it's like when the very source of your livelihood, of your well-being, suddenly disappears? It could be all kinds of things. It could be an emotional sense of emotional strength that you once had. You, you were spinning a lot of plates. You felt fine. You could cope with it. And then there was that event that was like the straw that broke the camel's back and you no longer feel like you can cope. Or... or Financial provision in your life. God gave you a good job that provided a good income. Or you had invested your funds wisely and then the economy turns down. Or you had a financial provider who is caring for you and then God removes their presence. It could be a friend. And we all need a friend. Someone who wants something for us and not from us. Someone who knows us better than sometimes we know us. Who's willing to look in our eyes and say hard things. And then this friend moves away. Or what about your spiritual energy? That time when you just felt so on fire for Jesus. So much passion for him. But then the brook dries up. And you're just going through the motions. You're just trying to be faithful. Have you ever had that feeling that I have no idea how this is going to turn out? You see, that's the place of total uncertainty. And it's disorienting because we believed that we had something between us and God. You know, we had this deal. That God, you do your part. I'll do my part. You know, God, I'll keep being faithful. You just keep bringing the water and we're all good here. God, you know, I'm going to come to church regularly. You just make sure every member of my family is healthy and they're, they're making good decisions and we're all good together, God. God, I'll keep reading my Bible and sharing my faith and you just make sure that I'm able to provide financially for my family. And then what happens? The brook dries up. Now what? God, I've been doing my part. I've been faithful to you. Why aren't you keeping your end of the bargain? I want you to hear something from me this morning. God never makes those kind of bargains. You know what God says to us? When we come to him bargaining, he says, I'm in control. I'm the one who directs your life. Nowhere on my job description does it say, provide for my child's ease and comfort until they painlessly enter into heaven. So then we have to ask the question, then what is he doing in these moments? Well, look with me at verse 8. 
He does great things in moments of uncertainty. The scriptures say this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go. You see, Elijah probably believed that he would stay in Kareth indefinitely until, of course, God told him to go back and to contend with Ahab again. So the brooks drying up means that there's going to be a big change in his life. Remember this. Circumstances will always mean eventual change for all of us. Change means uprooting from the familiar and the comfortable. Now, isn't it odd that we can grow comfortable with Kareth? Yeah, we can grow comfortable with those dead in places of life, those perpetual habits that we just keep coming back to. Sometimes God dries up the brook to say, Enough's enough. We're through with that grief. We're through with that anger that you're holding on to, that, that pattern, that habit that you won't let go of. It's time to move on. Now, when sudden change catapults you into something new, remember this. God has a better idea for how you should be spending this time in your life. He does. As we're going to see next week, he he has a better idea for Elijah. But for now, let me just ask you again, does God have your attention yet? Does he? You see, he can do nothing of significance in your life if he doesn't have your full attention. When he brings these odd provisions in, if you're distracted, if you're off in la-la land, then either one, you're going to miss them, or two, misinterpret them, or three, you may actually resent him for bringing them into your life. But remember, the only way to become like God is to maintain an awareness of him. Day after day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Well, let's pray. And let's ask God to keep our full attention. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I I want to pray that, that dangerous prayer on your behalf this morning. If we're looking at the story of Elijah and we walk away from this and say, oh, that was nice. Now I'm going to go about my day. We're missing it. God's calling you to make that dangerous prayer wherever, whenever, whatever. Let's pray. Lord, you have our attention this morning. Without without you in our life, God, we have nothing. We, We acknowledge that. We, we thank you for being the type of God who takes us through difficulty, stretching moments, who does not settle on our behalf, but who wants us to look like Jesus. That's your intention. That's your internal plan. Who I am today is not who I will be. And Lord, Whatever work you have, wherever, whenever, whatever, 
we give our lives to you. We're ready for you to do your great and marvelous and mysterious and odd works in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.